the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, welcome everybody to another edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast. The only podcast that aims to rate, review, and rank every heavy metal and hard rock album that you should own or have listened to track by track. And then we assemble them into a hall of fame to find, well, the definitive, what, 100? We've done that. 200? 500, 1,000, who knows? Uh, there are certainly enough albums to keep us going for a very long time. You can check us out at www.entersadmen.co.uk. We're on all of the um, social media platforms, so just search us up on those. Uh, I'm here, as always, with Richard and Steve. We've got another three albums lined up to listen to. Well, we've been listening to them. We've got three albums lined up to talk about. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation this week. The way that we choose the albums, we've got a list of themes and topics. We've got a tombola that's called Tico Torres. And every week he spits out a number. It correlates to our list, a number on our list. And we have a theme or subject or topic there. Last week, Tico spat out the four elements. And we got very excited, particularly after a couple of quite hard weeks where we were really pushing the envelope a bit. Um, I think what I would say, lads, is it should have been a better listening week than it actually turned out to be. But maybe you disagree. How did you get on? It's funny, isn't it? The weeks that are harder and more challenging in terms of themes ultimately cough up some real, real surprises. Steve? It's funny, isn't it? Fire, earth, air, water. You just think, well, they're just metal words, aren't they? At least a couple of those. And you just think, well, this will be a breeze. And I'm lying in the bath last week thinking, fucking hell, this is a bit, this is a bit tougher than I thought. Yeah, and uh, I'm particularly regretting the moments where I went, no, Earthshaker's too obvious and moved on yeah. um, because I could have done with a bit of wine tea this week, if I'm being absolutely honest. Anyway, let's, uh, let's go through what we did choose. Richard, tell everyone what you selected in the end. Yeah, so I went for the second album of this band that we're featuring on our podcast. The band is Rainbow, and I selected their album from 1979, Down to Earth. Excellent. It bode well when you uh, when you announced that, because I thought, oh, a bit of Rainbow, that'd be good. Um, uh, the one thing I'll say about that is it's not Ronnie James Dio, but people come into that. Um, uh, Steve's probably absolutely delighted it's not Ronnie James Dio and another round of Stargazer. But Steve, you, you came up with the youngest of the three out from 1993. I did, I did. Just, just, can I just say that I should have been happy that it's not Ronnie James Dio, but I'm actually not. So that shows you kind of where I am with Rainbow. Yeah, no, no. So like you, Earthshaker, top of the list, 48 hours ago, I was thinking, bloody hell, I wish I'd picked that. So I went, I headed northeast and went for one of those kind of punk metal combos they were apparently big at the time certainly according to the lead singer who was uh, very full of himself um and i'd chosen the wild hearts and earth versus the wild hearts and i look forward to your views i really do <laughs> i do remember the wild hearts from the early 90s um and as i think i said in a note to you i said i didn't like them back then however i've learned through this this podcast that circumspection through age is quite a gift so I was kind of quite interested to give it a listen. So we'll come on to that one. I, um, I've i got the middle album this week. So I've been doing quite a lot of painting in the house. Back in sort of January, February time, I put Spotify onto random kind of, you know, shuffle. And, um, and it, it kicked out loads of tracks that it thought I might like. And one of those 
was the second track on the album that I've chosen, which is called um, All She Wrote, which I absolutely loved. I thought, oh, God, that's an amazing song. And, you know, spoiler alert, my, my view of that hasn't changed. But I thought, well, I then did a bit of reading and discovered that they were Grammy Award winning, which <laughs> I just, I just, after this week, I just think maybe there wasn't a lot to choose from in 1991. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I went for Firehouse's debut. I can't believe what a huge deal this band was back in 1990. I'd never heard them before. They didn't even cross my radar, partly probably because um, I don't think they caused even a ripple on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, 1990s Firehouse. Um, so we're going to have a listen through to them. But um, what we'll do, first of all, is give everybody a quick listen to a few snippets from some of the tracks that feature on all of those three albums just to whet your appetite and put some of what follows into a little bit of text. Look at the fix you put me in Since you've been gone Since you've been gone I'm out of my head Can't take you So to shine When love's no friend of mine So there you go. That's a pretty varied triumvirate of bands, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, and the first of those, because we always do these things in chronological order. Um, so I think we're back in the 70s, unless I'm much mistaken, with Rainbows, and I'm going to gamble again, fourth album, Down to Earth. Richard? Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, we're just in the 70s. Uh, it was released on uh, 3rd of August 1979. So yeah, Rising, then Long, long Live Rock and Roll with, uh, with Dio. Um, but Dio then, uh, after Long Live Rock and Roll, left to join Black Sabbath after Richie Blackmore told him that he wasn't allowed to sing about kings or wizards. And uh, then the usual Blackmore revolving door of musicians appeared. Uh, was struggling for a, a vocalist, so um, as you generally tend to do when you're struggling for vocalists, you look to Skegness. Uh, out of Skegness came uh, a, a guy by the name of Graham Bonnet, who was then a solo artist. Roger Glover reluctantly, I think, decided to um, come back and work with, with Blackmore, and uh, they were writing in the uh, south of France. Uh, Bonnet auditioned there and, uh, and did very well, blew their minds apparently, and, and came on board. Uh, the album was recorded in April to July 1979 at, uh, say, Chateau Pays de Cornfelt in south France, uh, using a mobile studio. 
just for all of the instruments and, and then Bonnet recorded his vocals in Long Island, New York at Kingdom Sound Studios uh, later in that year. Released in the, on 3rd of August on Polydor, a nice little short album, eight tracks, 36 minutes in length, produced by Roger Glover and personnel, just to go through them all. So yeah, Richie Blackmore on guitar, Josie Powell on drums, Roger Glover on bass, Don Airy on keyboards, and uh, Graham Bonnet on vocals. It did pretty well in the UK, it reached number six, uh, number 66 in the US. It's burned two singles, which I think are probably the two most famous uh, Rainbow singles ever. I, mean, I, I, I suppose I Surrender's up there, but this burned all night long and since you've been gone. I, I think I bought Since You've Been Gone on single before I bought this album. Uh, I hold it very close to my heart as, as a song. I do remember it even being played at my wedding and I had a grand old time dancing to it. So I, I enjoyed going back to this album. Gents, how do you remember it? How have you got on? Steve, do you want to go first or shall I? It's not for me. Never, never did I think I would pine for Ronnie James Dio, but I have. And I, I, I don't think Graham Bonnet's got a bad voice, by the way, but it's chalk and cheese. What I find interesting, you have to sort of correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the last end of Sad Men, we looked at White Snake, the White Snake album, '87, um, in which Coverdale took his sort of sharp left turn, didn't he, in pursuit of commercial gold, and took a hatchet to their past. And Blackmore's done the same here, hasn't he? Surely, I mean, he's he's. Certainly, with the two big singles, he's looked for the charts, hasn't he? he, he has he taken? I mean, he's pretty much taken a hatchet to elves and wizards and just brought in shagging, shagging, and chart success, which is fine. But I had reservations with White Snake, although the album was brilliant. I've got reservations with this. I just don't think it quite works. Uh, listen, musically, you know, it's not quite my era anyway. I, I was always quite lukewarm about the new wave of British heavy metal anyway. I mean, I understood its purpose. And I appreciate where heavy metal went because of it. But an album like Down to Earth, if I'm honest, it's not high and dry. It's not British steel. I, I would play it sparingly. I think there's a couple of half decent moments on it. I think Down to Earth is a great name for the album because I think that they pretty much crash landed. I think that's absolutely fascinating because like you, I've always felt Down to Earth was the black sheep of the Rainbow family. Uh, yeah, even back in the day. I mean, I didn't, I didn't buy the album until probably 82, 83. And I was, I was kind of quite uninspired by it when I did. I Like you, Richard, I bought Since You've Been Gone. Let's park that to one side because I absolutely love that song. It's one of those, it's one of those songs that get played to death, but I never tire of it. For me, the, the problem that Down to Earth has is you've got three monster albums before it that are absolutely rooted in 1970s rock. It's big, it's epic. You know, it's got that, they've got that 70s sound. You listen to Difficult to Cure, Bent Out of Shape, Straight Between the Eyes. They are AOR albums. They're done for a completely different audience. Um, you know, they are commercial. You know, they were, they were deliberately commercial. They got Jolyn Turner in because he had that kind of voice, he had that kind of, I'm not comparing him to Steve um, Perry, but, you know, he had that AOR, big AOR voice. And they were writing melodic rock that was kind of fit for a, mid-80s, early 80s, mid-80s audience. Down to Earth is a new wave of British heavy metal album. And like you, Steve, I don't think it works. The best bits on it are the bits that throw back to the 70s. So, you know, for me, I think Lost in Hollywood, for example, or, yeah, Eyes of the World, I think they are the standout tracks on the album, put aside Since You've Been Gone, because I think it's 
you have to take that in isolation because of the commercial context. But yeah, I, I've always felt that down to earth, I like it or I like bits of it, but I've, I've never really seen it as a rainbow album. Isn't that odd? Mm. It is that link between what they were doing on, on Rising and Long Live Rock and Roll and then what they, they came on to do later. Yes, it was definitely, I think, not as gratuitous a left turn as 1987, but it was a definite step. For the, the reasons you two have talked about is why I've liked it as an album, because it has got bits of new and old on it. So I hope uh, that whetted your appetite. Down to Earth, Rainbow 1979, kicks off with All Night Long. It's the second single uh, from the album. I mean, music-wise, a proper classic Blackmore riff kicks it off. Powell's drums come in. Yeah, it, it, big, beefy. Then we get, uh, I guess, another shift on this album, isn't it? And that, that's the uh, the real layered vocals. Lots and lots of vocals, harmonies, double vocals, even through the uh, through the verses. Much more commercial. Graham Bonnet really goes for it. It's upbeat. It's, yeah, I'm with you, Mark. It, it's, it's not a patch on Since You've Been Gone, but it, it's, a, it's a decent opener, even if, even if for the grubby lyrics. Well, they're slightly more than grubby, aren't they? Um, <laughs> I don't know what the preoccupation is in this music with barely legal girls, but, um, yeah, I don't dislike All Night Long. I just I, It makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. always has. Um, I've always been slightly uncomfortable with the lyrical content. It's just, it's too in your face for me. Does it alter your view of the song, though, Mark? It probably does, subconsciously. Yeah, I think it probably does. Bonnet has got a, a good voice. He's got a good voice. But he had short hair and he wore dark, and he wore sunglasses indoors, and that makes him just a belly, doesn't it? <laughs> At the time, really. Yeah. You know, and I, and I never warmed to him as an individual. It was very hard to warm to his music. So maybe there's a bit of prejudice in there. I don't know. I like the song. It's all right. Well, no, it's more than all right. It's good that we're, we're, we're judging the music and not the character, isn't it? Although, you know, I'm sure bellends will, might be a theme through uh, some of this evening's uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's certainly more to come. <laughs> yeah. The two singles, I never warmed to this one. I just never did. I've tried for years and years because it was you heard it for years and years and it was a staple of so many rock shows on radio, wasn't it? I just find it all a bit happy, clappy. I think Cozy Powell's playing a tin can. It's all that ooh-la-la backing vocals. I, I, it doesn't work for me. It's, it's like Earth, Wind & Fire, a bit heavier. I think it is also worth saying, though, that we, we I think this is now quite, quite a tired song. But at the time, this was quite a bright, upbeat, pop metal song. And there wasn't a lot of it about. There weren't many songs that you could see on top of the pops. And I think, you know... I don't know about you guys, but when I was sort of, yeah, I mean, I was, what, 14, 15 when this came out, and I just wanted to see these bands on the television. These singles were a way of facilitating that because they ended up on top of the pops, and and that was kind of my moment on a Thursday evening where I got to see some of this stuff Mm. being played. Mm. So, right, well, let's move on to track two, which is Eyes of the World, um, introduced by a kind of a section of uh, was it bringer of war Mars bringer of war a bit of Holst I think from Don Airy on the keyboards this is pretty much as close to Stargazer as this album gets kind of epic I mean this is this is an album of much much shorter songs I mean, this is the longest track on the album at around six and a half minutes much more atmospheric and certainly echoes of, of rising on this almost a bit of a war of the worlds kind of mood to it I thought Production's pretty well balanced. I mean, given the equipment that was around at the time, maybe the budget 
and it really yeah, drives along, nice fills from Powell. Yeah, this is a step up from All Night Long, one of my favourites on the album. How about you? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I think it was quite brave of them to put this second. They clearly were going for the Stargazer epic kind of feel. I also wonder whether this was written around the sort of long live rock and roll sessions because it has got a cla- that classic rainbow riff and composition and structure, hasn't it? But again, you know, yeah, Bonnet gives it his all, but he's having to work really hard to give his all. And you just can't help but feel that if the little wizard were doing it, it would all be so much more effortless. And that's probably my issue, not not the albums. Even I've said the same thing. I mean, this this track is just made for the little fella, and it absolutely made. But it's interesting what you said about this being on track. So I hadn't even thought of, of, of its position on the album. But having thought about it, it's like it's almost Blackmore saying, I'm sorry about the first one. I'm so sorry. Now let's do what we do best. And, of course, he's not, because he's not an apologist in any way, shape or form. Okay, let's move on to track three, No Time to Lose. For me, this wasn't going just going back to Rainbow. This was going back to Purple. This got a real, almost early Deep Purple style to it, but it, it really charges along. I really like this track. I absolutely love it. It's probably my track of the album. I just think it's absolute class. Yeah, lovely guitar line running through that groovy back line. Yeah, the guitar solo into Don Airy's organ, Glover's bass line everywhere. And then a really great outro where Bonnet kind of channels his inner Rob Tyner of MC5, and he's kind of conducting the jam out of this song with a real passion, and it's um, but kind of more relaxed. Oh, this is genius. Brilliant. Well, you obviously like it more than Richie Blackmore did, because I'm sure you guys saw the quote that he gave to Sounds in 79 where he said, um, I have so much respect for classical musicians that when I listen to myself, I think, oh, that's nonsense. I can put down other people's music because the fact is I put down my own music and say it's rubbish. A lot of it is, not all of it. No Time to Lose definitely is, but Eyes of the World is okay, but a good deal of it is a waste of time. (laughs) He's literally just released this album, and that's his quote to sounds. But like you two, I really like this song. I I think it just rocks along and I think Bonnet does a really good job on it and I mean you've already said it but Roger Glover's bass line is just exquisite and and I think the other strength of this is that Blackmore's guitar is actually just back in the mix a bit which which sort of helps it I think so yeah I, I like this yeah. but Blackmore didn't but th- th- this is a guy that broke up Deep Purple because they wouldn't play 20th century green sleeves let's remember yeah, the marketing man's nightmare. He's thinking, oh, no, we've got a press briefing. For fuck's sake, don't send Richie. He'll just yeah. slaughter his own bloody work. <laughs> okay, let's uh, turn to the last track of side one, Making Love. It uh, starts with a nice gentle intro into a bit of a staccato riff. Give him his due. Blackmore doesn't always need to be front and centre and out there and higher than everybody else. Because this is another one where, sitting in the verses, he's not really dominating. Lots and lots of vocal harmonies in, in the verses. I've always liked this song. It, 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 but it's, this is such a departure, isn't it, really, from their previous stuff? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a misstep, personally. I, I love that little riff motif that runs all the way throughout. I think that's really nice. And I, I like the harmonies. I really like the harmonies. But I just think it loses it in the chorus. It's just, I just, no, it's not for me, really. Again, and maybe it's because I can hear too much of the old rainbow in it not done very well. I've got, I've got one word, 
filler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on from one word to um, four of them. Since you've been gone, track five. Yeah, so this was the first single. If I remember rightly, the the picture cover of the single was actually the image of the Rainbow Rising front cover. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit weird, but uh, obviously they they'd, they'd run out of art budget. Well, what can you say about this song? It's that riff. It's a sing-along. But the most amazing thing is, of course, uh, it wasn't written by Richie Blackmore. It was written by a, a guy called Russ Ballard, who's ex-Argent, who'd, uh, I mean, given this, I think, to a few other musicians who'd had a go at it. But in Rainbow's hands, it became absolute gold. Huge harmonies, fantastic sing-along. And, of course, Russ Ballard also wrote another big rainbow single in I Surrender. Uh, so he was responsible for you know, two of their massive, massive hits worldwide. Um, oh, crumbs, what can you say about this track? Everyone knows this. I mean, lovely story, big harmonies, a nice slow break in the middle, um, some lovely little fills. Oh, this takes me back, takes me back. It's one of those tracks. Brilliant. The whole world knows this. So we're only telling people what they already know, I think. Yeah, I mean, Russ Ballard was just a, a hit machine, wasn't he? I mean, he certainly made a shit ton more money out of writing songs for other people than he made out of Argent, that's for sure. I think the, the glory of this song, in the context of this review that we're doing here, is that this is a song where Graham Bonnet sounds entirely comfortable. There's no sense that he's working hard, that he's trying to prove himself. Mm. It just seems to flow naturally out of him, and it. I mean, I still, you know, I, I learned the words to this when it was released and, you know, I can sing it word for word now. I just love this song. It's all right. <laughs> no, it's better than all right. Undeniably catchy. It's much better than um, All Night Long. Far, far better. Pick of the two singles. Uh, I'm still take it or leave it. I, I still am. I can't really say any more than that. I, there's nothing to say about the track. As you say, Mark and Richard, everyone knows the song. And uh, my view of it is slightly dimmer than yours, that's all. Let's move on to track six, which is Love's No Friend. As well as sort of, you know, echoes of, again, sort of purple, mistreated kind of stuff. There's almost bits of, sort of bad company. This is a slower, more bluesy number. I guess given that Glover and Blackmore wrote it, um, it's not surprising. It's, it's a fairly straightforward, slow blues track. Uh, nice solo by Blackmore on it. Still like this song. Nice sort of lights out, dark room, beer in your hand kind of song. I like Love's No Friend. I um, I think it's on a different level to uh, most of the stuff on this album. I think Richie does the blues, um, and we know he does that well, you know. But Bonnet sings the blues well as well, you know. But this is made for him, this kind of song, I think, vocally. This is what he does well, and he's doing it well. I think this is a lovely kind of floaty, bluesy number. Again, a bit more purpley, perhaps. There's elements of that in it. I like it a lot. I, I think this is straight out of the Paul Rogers playbook. This is bad company and free. And I think he does a really, I think Bonnet does a really, really good job of this. I like this song. I like, I mean, I have to say, I think I like side two of this album far more than I like side one. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on what you guys are saying about Bonnet's vocals, which I hadn't really thought about before, is when he isn't trying so hard, he's more likeable it's sitting in the song a lot better okay let's move on to track seven which is danger zone so we go more up tempo again 
to a very bass-driven song. Almost starts off a bit, a bit Led Zeppi in a, in a way. Nice vocal layers, not as good as uh, as Love's No Friend for me, um, but it, it's enjoyable. I've not got too much to say about Danger Zone. I don't know you two have. Yeah, I like it. I think there's a lovely guitar line running through this. It's a little bit nasty, isn't it? And then you've got that really interesting bit, haven't you, where there's the kind of Middle Eastern guitar and organ bit that I've no idea where it comes from or why, but the song certainly doesn't suffer for it. And I think that's probably kind of just adds a level of, I don't know, almost strangeness. And that may well appeal to Rainbow fans of a, of a previous generation because what I would say about the writing on this album, and it's that's why I quite like this song, there's less kind of cleverness and and the breadth of songs that you know you go back to yeah all right I'll admit it like Stargazer or, or a light in the black which I much prefer to the two as you well know um, Gates of Babylon stuff like that there's virtually no kind of innovation really in this album and I think that's what just a sort of an unseemly charge towards the top of the pop studio and that's which is why it's nice to um, to get tracks like I, I like this I do like this because I think they're showing a bit more. Old school imagination, perhaps innovation in the in the songwriting. I think this does borrow heavily from Stargazer. There is that sort of epic feel, and also that you know that Middle Eastern kind of vibe to it is very very Stargazer as well. So this is more of a classic Rainbow song, and I again I, I do quite like it. I do quite like it. Okay, well let's move on to uh, last track of the album, Lost in Hollywood. And yeah, I mean, this is another nod, isn't it, to uh, to older Rainbow, much more up tempo. The vocals again are, are, are sort of store and drop uh, throughout. Typical Blackmore riff to it. Lots of nice breaks. You know, up, up and down all the way through. Sort of shifts in mood. Uh, yeah, I, personally, despite the nod to older Rainbow, it's a song that's never really grabbed me. But it feels a bit thin. To me, I don't, I don't know. What, what, what do you guys think? I blame the pre-chorus. I think that's horrible. I think it's a bit too pantomime for me. I love the yeah, I like you. I like the pace of it. I got, I'm getting a bit of a Judas Priest feel to this. Maybe it's the pace of it. Perhaps mm-hmm. I don't know. But, um, baseline's great, by the way. I mean, you can't mention that that tool enough um, because it you know works well across the whole album. Strange kind of church organ thing going on um, before the solo, but yeah, I know I like it. Interestingly, this is a track that I started off loving and it was scoring very highly. And over the week, I've become increasingly bored by it. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a lack of invention. Maybe it's because it sounds a bit like Old Rainbow, but it's not as good as Old Rainbow. Maybe that's got something to do with it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's gone not low, but it's, it's definitely dropped over the last seven days. Interesting. Right. Well, what is your pick of the album then, Mark? You're high and you're low. Uh, I'm really sorry, Steve, but I, you know, I, I obviously can't get beyond since you've been gone. I think um, it, it means it, it's such a fixture in my life, and um, you know, it's not. It's probably not, it's probably not the best song on the album, but it's my favourite. So there you go. That's my high. My low. Well, that was quite simple. It was making love. I just think that was the Steve says filler. Steve. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on making love, certainly. Um, and No Time to Lose for me, uh, absolute highlight of the album. I didn't see it coming, and it was um, brilliant. Really enjoyed it. No, good, good. Well, my low is, is Lost in Hollywood. Still just ne- never really walked to that song. And, yeah, I'm with Mark for, 
for all of the memories and not no not just the memories i think it's a, it's one of the best pop rock songs ever written since you've been gone right so there we go that's rainbow done our first of our three albums in episode 47's four elements theme uh, and we uh, move on to the debut album in 1990 by firehouse mark opening album sleeve notes yes firehouse Grammy award-winning firehouse. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, there's, let, let's make this clear. There is nothing inherently wrong with this album. There's an awful lot that isn't right with this album. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. But if we are genuinely saying that this was the best new thing on the block in 1991, then there was something rotten in the state of Denmark. I actually I quite like it in places. Like there's one, one or two tracks that I absolutely love, and there's quite a lot that I just think, well, yeah, that's kind of it's almost a blue Peter of an album. Here, here's one someone else made earlier. Um, but anyway, we'll get on to all of that. Nuts and bolts of this are that it's the debut album from Firehouse, self-titled debut album, released on September the 11th, 1990, in America, and uh, a month or so, well, about three weeks earlier, actually, in uh, Japan. Um, it was recorded earlier that year, released on the Epic label. This is an album that, my God, if ever there was the argument, if ever we wanted to pinpoint the album that proves the rule that you should stop at 10, it's this one, because it runs for an unnecessarily long 48 minutes and 34 seconds. It's been, it was produced by a guy called David Prater, who I imagine, Steve, uh, you will know because I think he uh, had some association with Dream Theatre, so he knew how to produce an album or two. No idea where it was recorded. Can't find that, any, that out anywhere. I have tried. The album after this was Hold Your Fire. It came two years later. I haven't heard that one either. Uh, the personnel on this, CJ Snare on vocals and keyboards, Bill Levity, guitars, backing vocals, Perry Richardson on bass, although you wouldn't know it because yeah, I think you only really hear the bass in one song, Michael Foster on drums, percussion and backing vocals. Didn't chart anywhere at all. Well, one of the singles grazed the top 75. In fact, the only single, but fucking hell, America went mental for this album. <laughs> Got to number 21 on the Billboard 200. 21! Jesus! And it went two times platinum in America. Gold in Japan, Canada, and Singapore. Uh, this kind of passed by my radar, didn't bother me in the slightest. Didn't even know it existed till it turned up on Spotify about three months ago. So, yeah, there you go. You couldn't get more chalk, more cheese. Uh, there's certainly a lot of cheese on this, by the way. America, absolutely mad for it. Over here, we didn't give a rat's ass. Um, wow. Gents, how have you found this? <laughs> yes. When, when the elements was chosen, I just had a quick skim through their first three albums, all of which notionally fall within our time scale. Um, so 30 or so tracks. And I thought, you know what? There's probably one half decent album to be had within those three albums because there's a few good tracks on each of the three. And, yeah, there's a lot of not very good stuff as well. The interesting thing I noticed when I was reading on Wikipedia, they seem to have picked up on the ballads as being their signature songs um, and have kind of hailed them as something of a badge of honour. For me, I would actually disagree. On, on all three albums, I think they're very weak. 
Um, I'll take the ban. I'll take them all out. Uh, certainly, the one on here, "Love of a Lifetime," is shocking. Um, it really is flat. And to be fair, flat's a word you could probably apply to the rest of the album. It's just a bit unmemorable from start to finish. It's there's nothing horrible on here. Um, there's some decent tunes. There's some decent melodies. There's a bit of weight every now and again. There's some riffs. I mean, you're ticking off all the the tick list, isn't it? And and you're running through it and you think, all right. I could listen to that. There's a decent solo or two, but just nothing that really that elevates it above the average. And what I would say is that given where we are, 1990, so we've come out of glam hair, stadium rocks, golden age. You can't just lazily do this and get away with it. Although bizarrely, judging by what you said with what happened in America, they got away with it somehow. And I just think, Jesus, how on earth did that happen? Because it's basically fairly average, isn't it? It's not unfair. That is exactly what this album is. It is absolutely forgettable with one or two exceptions. Mm. Richard, you'll have a view on this, I'm sure. I think think the musicianship on it is absolutely fine. I think the production on it is absolutely fine. It's just, it is very derivative, which is... Sorry, Richard, just, just one more thing. The other thing that's very fine about this album is the model on the cover. And when and when that kind of dominates your thought process, then you know you're onto a high. Oh, oh, come on, her aside, it is a fucking awful album cover. Yeah, <laughs> it is middle of the road, isn't it? Middle of the road hard rock. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because many many episodes ago, we talked about Crocus, everything, you know, heart attack, and we loved the fact that it was derivative. We loved the fact that they were copying blatantly every other big band around at the moment. Um, And I'm sure we'll go through the various bands that we've heard as we've listened to this. So I don't think it's about the ideas that they've borrowed. It's the fact that it's quite formulaic and safe. It's safe rock, safe metal. I've, I've enjoyed listening to it, but I've listened to it a lot whilst doing other things. I had it on repeat whilst I was washing the car and it was a good, a good album to listen to whilst you watched the car. (laughs) (laughs) The words every rock band wants to hear. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's been a good listen. Right, well, look, let's let's whiz through it and talk about the tracks in detail. The first track on this album, it starts off with a a sort of a a machine-altered voice, a bit of kind of gang harmonies, and, and you're thinking, okay, so far, so predictable. It, it is an utterly predictable start. It's, I think, derivative when the track actually gets going. It's got decent enough riff on it, and then it gets quite sleazy, and Levity's guitars and um, Foster's drums sort of carry it along. I get an awful lot of Warrant and Cherry Pie, um, and not in a good way. But I think the riffs out of the chorus save this song a little bit. I think they're really quite clever well clever is probably over cooking the souffle but it's a slight surprise given how predictable the rest of the track is how prolonged was that intro by the way jesus i mean it could shave 30 seconds off that straight away isn't it isn't it the oddest choice of opener i mean there's about three or four better tracks on there this is such a slow chugger it's just not a it's not an album opener at all as far as i'm concerned you know, you want to be grabbed by the testicles and 
hurled into the amp. I just think it's the wrong opener completely. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It, it? There's cherry pie straight away. But then there's also, I think, the that opening bit, they were trying to be a bit Def Leopardy, bit of almost some stuff, kind of stuff you, you know, some of the stuff we complained about on Hysteria, remember? Yeah. And and then it, I'm, I'm getting echoes of let, Let's Get Rock, Adrenalize, uh, Def Leopard getting even worse kind of era. Yeah, lots of sub leopard on this. And frankly, if, if, if I hear radio rhymed with let my speakers blow or anything to do with blowing speakers, I'm going to hurl my listening device through the fucking window. It's, it drives me nuts. And it's like, okay, so not only are you being really predictable and pedestrian on the composition, you can't even be bothered to think of something else that might rhyme with radio. Anyway. As I say, the riffs out there. <laughs> Number 21 um, in the charts, Mark. That's all you need to know. Yeah, I mean, fair play, son. They made a shit ton of money yeah. out of it. So, you know, if that, was the, if that was the end game, then fair play. Yeah. Um, track two. Well, it's only downhill from here. Because this, for me, the track two is the, all she wrote is the best track on the album. I think it's got a lovely riff. It's got a really catchy chorus. I love the harmonies on it. Um, I think CJ Snare's voice is... Uh, really good. It, uh, again, I mean, it, it is a, a an homogenization of just about every other rock voice you've ever heard in your life. But I quite like it on this. Uh, I love the fact that it's got a really nice chunky riff in it, but everything else about the track is rooted in AOR land. And I, th- I quite like that just juxtaposition. And it's that riff from Levity that runs through it is absolutely delicious. It doesn't get any better after this for me. I can't believe you the four-lettered word that ends in T. I can't believe you've not mentioned it. It's just like it sounds like round and round. <laughs> that's why you like it. That's what I say. That yeah, that's why because because that that bit at the beginning. Yeah, and at the end. Yeah. So this is Bay City Rollers meets rap. <laughs> yeah. There's a band I'd have gone to see. But it's very catchy. Okay, so as we set off on the ski slope down. We get to, frankly, the most bizarrely named track on the album. Two words that you never hear together, shake and tumble. I mean, who uses tumble apart from CBeebies? Fuck's sake. I've written down here, not so keen, (laughs) which is an (laughs) understatement. I don't much like um, the riff, the arrangement. I've heard it a thousand times before. I just find the chorus, I find it really odd. Why would you choose those two words to put together? Uh I know. I can trump your thousand. I've written, I've heard this a million times before. <laughs> We're singing yeah. from the same page here. I've got nothing to say about this. Absolutely nothing. This is not getting me erect. It's just a, it's just a poor <laughs> uh, it's, it's got a decent groove to it. Baseline's good. I like the baseline. Let's move on to the single, Don't Treat Me Bad. Fucking hell. Utter, I've, I've just written two words. Utterly tedious. I just... Oh. Uh, no, I've got nothing else. Jack and Diane. Well done. That's ticked off that one. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a real poor man's melon camp, isn't it? It's, yeah. 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 Let's, let's press on. And we'll come on to um, Order Be A Law, which takes misogyny to a whole new level. I think the lyrics aside, it's all right. I don't much like the gang vocal on it. I think the chorus is pretty derivative, but the melody, <laughs> I quite like the melody. It kind mm. of saves the whole thing a 
a little bit. Yeah, no, and it's you know, it, the hooky chorus, but again, any band that comes on this podcast and does this kind of over-the-top, you'll never get me a live sucker equivalent lyric is going to be panned. Yeah, yeah, and rightly so. You have to divorce the two, don't you? Because, you, as you say, if the bloke stops singing or he writes some different lyrics and you've got a half-decent song here, right? It's, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a decent tune, you know, it's a decent tune. But it's just it's just another one for the checklist, isn't it? It's another it's just another one for the sort of direct. You know, I mean, lyrically, it's shit. Y and T were occasionally guilty of this. You do know you you are well aware of that, aren't you? That they yeah. would once yeah. or twice. Yeah, yeah, down and dirty. <laughs> yeah, just nobody's nobody said it. So, funnily, you should mention Richard. Um, you never get me alive, suck or whatever. Um, I, I'm hearing a lot of Babylon AD here. That's a bit unfair. <laughs> Well, no, I'm hearing the worst of Babylon AD. Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's move it on. Track five. So track Jesus, we're only we're not even halfway through this fucker. So track track six is uh, Lovers Lane. Oh which is the <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I genuinely thought it was a call to prayer. <laughs> In whose church? <laughs> I did. I thought it was a oh, lordy. <laughs> it's a, it's actually quite a nice riff to open with. Um, punctuated by it's all punctuated by Foster's kick drum. Is it the kick drum, Richard? Tell me. Oh yeah, yeah. Sounds like I, I, I think yeah. I love the double bass work in this. This yeah, um, yeah. This, this jumped out me from the start. Not only for the oi oi. Yeah, I like the build. It's got a good boogie. Yeah, one of the better tracks on the album. I, I like this. This was the first time I'd noticed the drummer, Michael Foster, by the way, six tracks in. So it's um stands this track apart. I'm getting a lot of docking here. I mean, I'm just I think that's a kind of theme through the album a little bit. The the guitar is where it does sound very George Lynch. Yeah, it's almost t- tuned that way. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly decent track, I think. Um on the vinyl inside one. Home is where the heart is, is up next. We've mentioned CJ Snare. We have mentioned Michael Foster. And we have mentioned Bill Leverty. But the one person we haven't mentioned so far is Perry Richardson on bass. And that's largely because we haven't heard him. But we do on this. And actually, uh, this is another highlight for me. I really quite like this. I love the fact that I assumed it was going to go in one direction and it went in a completely different one. You hear the opening, you hear the intro, and you think, oh, I know where this is fucking going. Um and then it does actually go somewhere. It does actually go somewhere different, and it's quite surprising. And I think, I think, given how derivative and predictable the rest of the album has been, I was quite grateful just for the surprise of hearing it do something else. So yeah, I quite like this, and you do get to hear Perry Richardson's bass. Yeah. All, all I would say, Mark, is just because a track goes somewhere different doesn't necessarily mean it's going to the right place. Ah. Well, elaborate. <laughs> I just think this is okay, strictly okay. I mean, it's one of the okays, one of the many okays on this album. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting very unexcited. Yeah, I quite like it. As I say, I think it's got a much better balance, and I do like the vocal melody over that that whole sort of. It's, a, it's got a good backline, and then with the the guitar sort of dancing over it as well. So structurally, I, I quite like it. Anyone getting White Sister in the chorus? Well, I tell you what, I was getting, I was getting anything that doesn't quite make back for the attack. It's just not quite good enough to get on there. 
Do, do you know what? Now you say that, he does sound very Doc and Don yeah. Dockin, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next track is uh, something called Don't Walk Away. Again, this is sort of slightly interesting. It's got a really dirty guitar to open it all up with, which is slowed right down. Snare's vocal is deeper, grittier. And then it's sort of the, the, the tune sort of prowls around a bit and snarls and spits. But although it's different, I, no, I'm not a big fan. I just I don't much like it. No, me neither. It, it chugs like um, rock on the radio a little bit, doesn't it? And it's, um, you know, how many more times? It's okay. Don't Walk Away gives way to a little curio called Seasons of Change, which is an instrumental largely dominated by a Spanish guitar. It's not quite the uh, sting of the bumblebee on Man of War's seminal Kings of Metal album. But it's, yeah, I, I, I quite like a bit of Spanish guitar. I just don't really know what it's doing here. That's mm. that's the issue with it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it obviously just sounds like it's pissing around in the studio. Yeah. So Seasons of Change, the instrumental, leads into what should have been, I think, the last track on the album. It's probably the second strongest one, Overnight Sensation. It's got a great riff, I think, probably. Well, I say it's got a great riff. You don't hear it. It's it's there at the beginning, and then it just disappears in the mix. But when you hear it, it's probably the best riff on the whole album. Mm. But, but I don't know. This is why I wrote down. There is something about this album that just makes it feel wholly received. That what I'm getting is just almost like a a radio mega mix of the best and worst bits of some of the big bands that were around in the five years that preceded this. So yeah, I think this is quite a good track. I think the production lets it down. Yeah, I like, I like this one. Really like the riff to it. It drives along. Vocal harmonies are good. So, I think, yeah, it's um, one of the better tracks in the album. Yeah, echo that. I mean, my, you know, a, a very decent, not spectacular, but it, it's my favourite track off the album, but it doesn't have to be spectacular to get top honours on this album, does it? Um, I'm getting a lot of treats. There's another one to throw into the mix. If that kind of, those harmonies and the melodies, I feel very treaty with this. Um, just so derivative. But anyway... This is 1990. We've had the best part of a decade of this sort of music, so we're used to it. It's it's, it's kind of like a, their sort of retro review of the of the decade for us. But um, you know, they just should have, they just should have got other bands to do it. <laughs> That's so true. That is, it's like an end of decade roundup, isn't it? Yeah. Here's the best bit you've been listening to for the last <laughs> ten years. But not all the best bits. But I just keep coming back to this one and Grammy. As I say, the the, the album should have ended at this point. I'm ready for it to end. I've been ready for it to end for probably three or four tracks now. But no, we push on. We push on with a song called Love of a Lifetime. And I've just written down, oh, here we are. Here's the fucking ballad. And it is an absolute shit show. I mean, as soon as you start singing, I absolutely fucking hate it. I haven't got a good word to say about it. Oh, this is (laughs) shocking. It's just so flaccid, isn't it? Uh, come a minute into it because it's kind of got that nice general start and you're thinking all right well where's it going to go that's interesting and it just refuses to go anywhere interesting at all the drummer can't be asked the bass player can't be asked i just can't be asked to give it anything other than the average score that it deserves it's just so so average it has no redeeming features as a ballad no i mean it's not saved the week that's the one thing i'll say about it and if that counts as praise you know we're in a bad place. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not even going to mention Silent Night. 
<laughs> Come on. Wikipedia says this is their signature power ballad. I'm not quite sure who wrote that. Yeah, disappointing. So this is the first reason why you shouldn't go more than 10 tracks. Because here's the second reason. It's a song called Helpless. It ends the album. Thank the Lord. This is just filler. And, and it, it's just, it's like a completely different band. It's, I don't know what they've done, but they've just thrown something together, thrown it on the end of the album. And uh, I'm, I'm now sick and tired of the harmonies. I'm sick and tired of the guitars. I just, uh, it's like good night Vienna. This, this album cannot now end soon enough, which is a shame because <laughs> it had the one thing about this album if you listen to it objectively, is it had the opportunity and the, and, and the scope to be really, really good, and it isn't. It's nowhere near really good. There's such an absence of variety in their songwriting, isn't there? They've got a ballad, I accept that. The rest of it is so, you said it earlier, Richard, it's so formulaic, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, chorus out. The harmonies are there, and they're kind of fairly asinine. On this they're worse. They're, they're, they're worse than bland, I think, on this song. It's just so irritating. I find this track a real irritant. Fucking hopeless, not helpless. This should have stopped to overnight sensation, Mark. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I, I don't dislike this. I think it's okay. There's bits of Y&T in this. But it's got, it's got a few hooky riffs. Uh, I, I, again, when I was cleaning the car... <laughs> well there you are i don't think there's anything more to say really is there highs and lows champs um seasons of change is is the low top one for me overnight sensation steve i kind of took the arbitrary decision of not marking seasons of change had i marked it and maybe i'll have to later we can discuss this i would have still given it more than love of a lifetime which is utter dross. Um, and yeah, overnight sensation. That's my that's my best my best moment. Okay, so uh, I have also uh, marked seasons of change higher than love of a lifetime, even though it's a uh, you know a couple of minutes of just random noodling. I still think it's better than however many minutes of abject tosh love of a lifetime turned out to be. And my high, well. All she wrote every day of the week. Um, I, I loved it the first time I heard it. I really love it now. Right, we move on to album number three. I'm not sure whether I'm glad to see the back of Firehouse or sorry to see the back of Firehouse, but we're about to find out. Steve, please introduce Ginger and the Wild Hearts. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, so our third curate's egg of the episode, I think. Earth versus the Wild Hearts by the Wild Hearts. Ginger, who is the lead singer and all-round owner of the band, was asked what would have happened, this is back in the day, he was asked what would have happened if the Wild Hearts had made it big. And he said what would have happened is that there would have been one band out there who was interesting, which, if nothing else, shows both his disdain for pretty much every other band and everything on this planet, and also his very own high opinion of himself, which I think is very, very much evident throughout this album. He's a man who is clearly irked by an awful lot of things, um, and it has been put onto vinyl, where he can let his mind run right. And whatever you say about him, and I know, Mark, you've got plenty to say about him, it's a very interesting mind that he lets run right. The album 
is almost a bit of a Frankenstein's monster, is the best way I could describe it. Wells together a handful of really sort of different genres and styles, um, but tattooed with the personality of a band who were bringing personality to music. Rightly or wrongly, they were at a time, you think about this, this is early 90s, they railed against grunge, which they found unbelievably dull and abject and miserable. They railed against Britpop, and I think a lot of us did as well, the likes of sort of Suede and Pulp and all that shite. So personality in music was kind of lacking. Um, I, I kind of get the sense with this album, this is basically four blokes having a lot of fun, and it's done with a light touch. I mean, the issues are... <laughs> Well, they're very personal. It's well observed. There's a lot of observational stuff going on in here. And some of the lyrics and some of the lyrical writing on this is really, really very clever. There's an almost comedic touch in place for that's not to denigrate them musically because, because the keystones of this album are big, big riffs and big metallic riffs, as well as an awful lot of punky riffs and kind of punky sharpness. Lots of melodic interludes. They do like harmony or two, often when you don't expect them. Um, and they've got absolutely no truck whatsoever with taking a track completely off piece, which is, you know, I don't mind at all. But there's a metal soul in this album, I think. So this is, as I say, this is Earth, Earth versus the Wild Hearts, 30th of August 1993. It was released and it was recorded over quite a long period before that on East West Records because they were um, they were discovered by Dante Benuto. I'm sure the name, you'll remember the name from Kerrang, who was also East West's A&R man, uh, man, and he recommended them to the label in uh, in 1991, which was a couple of years after the band had formed, uh, which happened itself six months after Ginger was fired by the choir boys. Um, so, yeah, East West Records, it runs to 49 minutes. The producers of the Wild Hearts themselves, Mark Dodson and Mike Drake, it was recorded at Wessex Studios in London, the very famous Wessex Studios. The personnel, as I've mentioned, Ginger Wildheart, born David Leslie Walls in South Shields in England. He's the vocalist and the guitarist. CJ is on guitars and vocals, full name Christopher Perso Jagdar, um, Danny McCormack on bass, and Stiddy, a.k.a. Andrew Stidolf, on drums. Um, it got to 46 in the UK charts. Um, all tracks are written by Ginger. Um, there are 11 of them. I mean, to me, this is the inspiration for so many late 90s, noughties, punk bands. I can hear so much kind of Sum 41, Weezer, Jimmy Eat World, Blink 182, in, running through this and many, many others. This is almost a prototype for that kind of pop punk stuff that's gone on to infest the charts. But at the same time, it's done with big driving guitars and crashing drums and to that end it's odd i mean that's the, that's that's my conclusion it's it's a really odd piece of work i like so much of it and some of it just annoys me but how did you two get on with it <laughs> oh god oh god oh god oh god uh, i always felt back in the early 90s that ginger was just taking the piss you know and and not in a good way, you know, not in a not in a wink and a tongue in your cheek kind of taking the piss. He was actually taking he was taking the piss because he was, you know, I felt um, that he had nothing but contempt actually for 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 most almost everything in life, and um, and everything was kind of done with a sneer and a snarl, and it it wasn't, you know, I always felt with him that it was 
it, there was something quite unpleasant about him as an individual and his band. So that's kind of where I was in the early 90s. You know, with the benefit of, what is it, 25, 25-odd years? A bit more than that, isn't it? But with the benefit of many years, I feel absolutely no different about it. Um, <laughs> I, I hate this album. I, I absolutely hate it. I cannot think of a single redeeming facet of it. I cannot tell you how much I have disliked listening to this over the last week. But I can see why you might. I do see why you might, because I don't like the punk in it. I don't like the punk stuff. I think it's hilarious that Ginger, you know, kind of has a this sort of, you know, sneering contempt for Britpop, because I hear fucking Oasis all over this album. I also like you, Steve. I get a load of Weezer. I don't like Weezer either, um, which I know puts me in a minority of one in this room. No, I hate this album. So there you go. I've said it. Before Richard says anything, I'll ask you the same question I asked you about Rainbow. Is your view swayed wholly by the fact that you don't like the persona in front in front and centre? No, I don't like the songs. I don't yeah. like the music. Yeah. I, I couldn't wait for it to end every time I listened to it. The first time in the year that we've been doing this that I have dreaded listening to anything. Wow. Richard? So more so than Tool or... Caius. Yeah, I would I would listen to Tool and Caius ahead of this. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating actually to hear Mark's description because the first word I've put down in my overall summary of, of this album is Marmite. In doing the research for this, I read loads and loads of reviews online that held this up in the absolute highest regard. Just loved it to the five out of five, a hundred percent. You know, some people that just think this is is up there with Appetite as one of the best debut albums ever. How have I felt about it, given that, yeah, we'll, we'll make references to Weezer and Green Day and lots of other bands, I'm sure, as we go through it. Yeah, I, I've, I've found, I found it, you know, as I said earlier, very, very challenging. It's very hard to, to get into. I had to get quite forensic with it. I found it quite hard to market because primarily I'm torn between. And there are elements of it that are good. I think some of the riffs... Some of the rhythms um, are, are are good, but I struggle at times with the way that they've thrown this stuff together. You mentioned about Frankenstein, Steve, um, them going off in all these different directions, but I, a lot of the time, I'm not sure it works. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it does work. And of course, biggest problem of all on this album is I need to hear a band that can sing, and they just can't fucking sing. <laughs> everything else all that's that, that actually is, there's some good bits about it then they start singing and he starts singing and and obviously these are the days before um auto-tune so and, and and i think a lot of this is recorded kind of off demos and i suppose the whole point was to capture them raw but jesus they can't fucking sing the album kicks off with a track called greetings from shitsville which is I can hear so much Sum 41 in this song. I'm a big Sum 41 fan. I know you two probably aren't, but I love them to bits. So this is a song basically about the dingy flat that uh, Ginger was holed up in at the time, somewhere near Hampstead, I believe. Um, and he basically talks about how shit the flat was. I think it's a really, really good opening, a really strong opening song. Big driving guitars, crashing drums, catchy vocal harmonies. Um, it's got a nice buzz to it. I really like this. It's all right. 
the first riff starts and then it kind of jerks into the second one. Apart from the words, I like the melodic bridge and the chorus. Yeah, there are better better songs on 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 the album. Yeah, yeah, echo that. Mark, are there better songs on the album? There are better riffs on the album. Um, yeah. I, I, of all of the tracks on the, I, this is one that I I mind less. Um, oh, I don't know. I just I just this is what pulp would sound like with different guitars and not having showered for three months. <laughs> yeah, that key look, that key look. Yeah. I think it's better than them, isn't it? Surely. Oh, it's better than pop. Now, there are many. There are many who say that Greetings from Shitsville has never been bettered by the Wild Hearts. I've read so many reviews holding it up as one of the all-time great anti-establishment, you know, pro-punk songs that all kids have to listen to, um, that it's their greatest track. Well, it's not even the greatest track on side one of this album. Let's So let's nip that argument by straight away, because it's followed by a track which is immediately better called TV Tam. Um, which was a single, kicks off with a lovely distorted guitar run. The riff kicks in, in a much better riff, big pause, and we're into a song that just rocks, and it rocks along at a right good lick. I think it's better than the opener. Yeah, we agree. Yeah, hooky, poppy verse, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the better songs for me. And this is a good example of where they're throwing some of the, all this other stuff in. I don't know if you ever heard some of that real weird sort of Southern American sort of fusion music that's a bit punk, a bit rock, a bit funk, Latin like Os Mutantes and stuff like that. That's a brilliant rock. It, re- it reminds me of that kind of stuff, some of the, the melodies and, on this. Uh, but as, a, as a track, actually, this, this has grown on me a bit, probably like a fungus. I'm surprised it had to grow on you, Rich. That's, that's what surprises me. I thought you'd instantly take to this. This one, because of the other elements of it, I got beyond the fact that they can't sing. Yeah, OK, there's, that. there's always that millstone around their neck with you, isn't there? Yeah. Mark? This would be one of the stronger songs on the album for me. I think it's got quite a nice melody, actually, and I think it's got a nice riff running through it. His vocal spoils it, but his vocal spoils just about everything. It's not as challenging as some vocalists that we've listened to, but those vocalists had the advantage of having much better music behind them, I guess. Okay. Reach number 53 in the charts. So go on then, Mark. Where does Everlone stand? Um, you've you've assumed that I actually remember what it sounds like. Um, <laughs> um, actually, again, I think that the thing with this album is that there are some nice riffs in it. There are some nice riffs in it. There's another one on Sucker Punch, yeah, which yeah. I really like. Yeah. Um, this is all right. Everlong is all right. It's all right. Yeah. Richard, what do you make of it? Right, okay, redeeming features. Verse, riff, like that. There's some, there's some good riffs here. You know, the, the, verse, the verse riff really reminds me, I mean, given that it's a year before it, uh, before DQ was released, it, it reminds me of sort of Welcome to Paradise kind of green. Yeah. Uh, I like how it's driven by the drums. I'm not quite sure about when it sort of really sort of slows down towards the end. Uh, that kind of just gets thrown in there, but and then I like the riff right at the end. You know, the, the, the chorus is being sung by a bunch of drunk football fans. <laughs> not one of my favourites overall. I thought it was a kind of Iron Maiden finish. I thought that was a real gallop to that finish. It's, it's the only track on this album where I'm going to name check a kind of, you know, classic 80s metal band. But I, I saw that in there. I don't mind the disjointed bits. I, I don't mind these odd segues and bridges. There's some that are quite bizarre, certainly on the next track, um, which is called Shame On Me, which again, has, I think it's got a great riff into Shame On Me. But the highlight of this track, 
you, you boys have got to go back to it. And if you've not clocked it, there's a point in the middle of this song where within a few beats, we go from Living Colour into Exodus to MC5 to the Monkeys to Joe Satriani and back out into almost a Metallica riff to the finish. Such imagination and invention. And it may sound odd, it just works. I like this song. Yeah, I think it's all right. I say, yeah, that break in the middle's just a bit weird, isn't it? Then that drop yeah. guitar solo. And it's kind of Rolling Stones kind of harmony, the verses, isn't it? Yeah, they, they sing a bit better in this one. I thought the opening riff was actually uh, put me, you said you weren't going to name check any other classic 80s bands. It put me in mind of the opening to Death Forever by Motorhead. Um, it's got that kind of soaring, chunky riff going on. So I was kind of quite, my ears perked up at that point. I thought, well, this could be quite interesting. But it just turns into a punk song. And, and that's not what I'm really interested in listening to. So final track, final track on side one. Richard is Love Shit. What do you make of that? Okay, so there's a kind of a Rolling Stones kind of Black Crow star. Big time. And, um, yeah... I mean, it's a hooky chorus. I like, I, I do like the chorus, but I don't know. I don't, I really don't care for the lyrics. <laughs> I really don't care. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. It's not down and dirty, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like this either. Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting a trend, but that's fine. Two noteworthy things about this song: first, there's, there's quite a decent guitar solo in here from CJ. Um, which is a which is a rarity. Um, it's just a metal fan in me, but I like that. And the other thing is the backing vocals of one Stevie Van, the one-time wife of Mutt Lang. How about that? That's about the most exciting thing I can uh, add to that track. Yeah, flip it over, and we start side two with the Miles Away Girl. And as a st- as a start to a side, brilliant, big chugger of a riff, which quickens up. Then some screaming guitar kicks in. Go very Green Day for a bit um, with that punk guitar line behind the vocal. Then the rest of the band come in. I think this is a great song. It needs a finish at the four-minute mark, but then it just they bring a dollop of sort of 60s popping at the end, and it's um, odd. But I love the riff. Yeah. I like the way that it drops into the verse. I mean, this is, this is pop punk. The vocals are more bearable. They're still poor, but they're more bearable on this. Yeah, <laughs> one of my higher-marking tracks. Miles away, God. I wish, just wish this album would be miles away. It's, um, yeah, I, I, well, I, I can't. How many different ways can I say it's not for me? It's not for me. I'm going to look. I'm going to look forward to your description about it's not for me on the next track. <laughs> <laughs> There's way too much Green Day in this for me. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. And I, I did mention, I know, but can there be way too much? I don't know. So go on then, Richard. You kick us off with My Baby is a Head Fuck. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, yeah. You've got... <laughs> um, well, I've, this is kind of... <sighs> I've never seen a man struggle so much. This is the Beach Boys meets the Sex Pistols done badly. And I really don't care for the Beatles break in the middle. No, it's odd, isn't it? There is quite a lot of Johnny Rotten in that first vocal, isn't there? And I've not clocked that. Yeah, Mark? I just wish you'd fuck off. I've just... <laughs> I really have. 
Do you know, I really have had enough of him. I got to this point with this album that I wasn't really interested in finding out any more about him, his band, this album, the lyrics or anything. I just wanted it to go away. And, you know. Okay. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to prolong the agony, but I have a little, I have a little stat. Because the guitar shadow in this is done by Mick Ronson. Oh, yes, yes. Bowie's old guitarist, amongst others. And um, it's believed that it was the last performance he did before he died um, a few weeks later. And they dedicated the album to him. Now, what I don't like about Ginger is apparently interviews with Ginger suggested they wanted Ronson to produce the album, but East West didn't, quite understandably, on grounds of the bloke wasn't well. What wasn't well? He was, he was very unwell. He was very ill. Um, and Ginger kind of turned that round and gave the impression that, you know, the, uh, the corporate wankers at East West, how dare they, you know, we, they should have given him his last hurrah. It wouldn't have worked. I, I don't blame the record company at all. Well, the other thing was, he, they, they, you know, Ginger said, we had this song called My Baby is a Headfuck, and it wasn't that great, but we thought if we can get Ronson to play solo on it, then it'll work. How does, how does getting Mick Ronson to play the solo on a shit song Make it not a shit song. A little bit of Chaz and Dave piano in here as well. That always helps. That always gets things going. <laughs> we need to rename this podcast the Chaz and Dave podcast. <laughs> right, Mark, to the redeeming feature. This is the strong. I think this is this is my 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 highest low point of the album, which is unusual because normally I wouldn't go for a track that was fast. Yeah. Um, but it has got a fan- fantastic um, riff, and so it's my my high point for the riff because I don't like the vo- vocal, which is just distorted beyond absolute belief. But yeah, it's got a fabulous riff, so I could listen to that all day. Sucker Punch to me is, is the Wild Hearts doing Ministry Psalm sixty nine yeah. era Ministry. I like it a lot. I think it's yeah, that, it's about as metal as they get. I love that kind of almost sort of William Tell guitar line that runs in it as well. It's just, it's really kind of cute. Yeah. Um, and then it turns a bit more melancholy, a bit more soulful at the end. Good song. That's uh, all right. <laughs> Sentence I've written is, sounds like Green Day before they got good. <laughs> Can we just, before we move on, the album cover. It's him. So, which is it? It is him. So wrapped in barbed wire with, what looks like, is it a, some sort of scorpion and a cockroach? I think so. Yeah. 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 And, and what looks like duct tape over his eyes. Mm. Yeah. It's a very, very strange album cover. Yeah, and, and if you look closer, I think it looks like he's, he's, he's actually in a bath of oil. Oh. The heart parts submerged in sort of crude oil. Or oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I see that now. The next track is called News of the World. I think it's quite a decent song. It's one of those that wanders off again, but via a pair of monster riffs into something quite frenetic and then just sort of chugs off into the distance. I like it. This actually reminds me a bit of The Almighty, Ricky Warwick and the Fighting Hearts. There's, there's something of that in it. And um, so I don't, I don't actually mind this track. Would I go so far as to say I like it? Probably not, but I don't mind it. <laughs> Sound-wise, I put this down as poor man's Weezer, even though obviously this was a this was a year before yeah. Weezer's debut came out. Maybe Weezer listened to these guys and influenced them. I don't know. So I quite like the riffs. I've marked it up for the riffs. 
but the bad vocal notes in this song made me wince. This in particular would be so much better if they could just sing. They toured with the Almighty, interestingly, promoting this album. They toured with quite a lot of decent bands. In fact, we've se- I think we've seen them, Mark, but I don't, because I think they supported ACDC on the Ball Breaker tour. Yeah, I think we might have been in the bar for that. I'm convinced we would have been. Um, drinking About Life, which is pretty much a two-minute into Do we even need to talk about it? I mean, because I can see that you're losing the will to live, you boys. Well, <laughs> well we should. I mean, it, it, it starts off as a jam and then sort of turns into punk. I, I don't know why they included that this, the, this track on the album. I would have been embarrassed to write it. <laughs> all, all of the poor attempts at songwriting... You know, when I was in the band in my early 20s, I was coming up with rubbish better than this. So let's put you out of your misery. I mean, I actually quite like Love You Till I Don't. Um, I think it's one of the better songs on the album. Decent riff, good harmonies. Um, they dispense with the riff after a couple of minutes and go off on one of their random adventures, um, which is okay. But they bring it all home into that riff. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad finish at all. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, like the verse, as you say, that, that, that riff that, that they return to, actually, which is mm. rare on this album, where they, they've actually got that riff that glues mm. this song together, which is good. I think it loses it a little bit in the middle. I mean, they, but they, I guess they're just throwing loads of other stuff in there, and at some point it goes a bit reggae. But then it, it, I like the way it finishes. Yeah, so I think in terms of a finish to an album, in terms of that riff, and it, it's a good thing. I'd like to have heard more songs like this on the album, I must admit. Mark, if more of the album had been like this, I think I'd have quite enjoyed it because I get I'm getting a lot of Disneyland after dark here. I think this is this feels a bit more together in some some way and a bit more melodic, which kind of does it for me because I don't don't really get on with the sort of the discordant, disjointed nature of the rest of the album. So yeah, I don't mind this actually. It's all right. I, I've had a, I've had quite a laugh with it. Um, should we do some highs and lows? Lows and not so lows. Uh, my baby's a head fuck is the low, and the high, as I said during the conversation, is sucker punch. Okay, Richard, drinking about life is my low, and highs TV tan. That's what my my highest TV tan. Fair enough. Yeah, no, we are marking drinking about life because it's my low as well, and my high would be shame on me, um, which I like. Quite a lot. So there you have it. That really is quite the mix for three albums, and it will be fascinating to see how we score them, which we will do. Um, And then once we've done that, we'll come back and we'll see what dizzy heights these three albums get into in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initialising rating process. So I'm first with Rainbows Down to Earth from 1979. How did that do? Well... Steve scored it 7.125. Mark, the highest of the three of us, was a 7.837. And I scored it with a 7.625. And that gave Rainbows down to earth an overall of 7.52917. Mark, how did Firehouse do? Well, not as well as I thought it was going to be the first time I listened to it after the uh, the last episode. Um, so uh, Steve scored it. Well, virtually all the 60s, 6.66667. Richard, you scored it a dead seven, and I scored it the highest at 7.29 to give it an 
overall average score of six point, well, seven really, if we're rounding up, but 6.98 and all the threes. Um, Steve, the Wild Hearts. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they split opinion. Well, they didn't really split opinions. None of us liked it that much, but I liked it more than you two, certainly 7.13. Richard gave it a 6.22. And you, oh, utterly dismissive, gave it a, a 5.96 <laughs> for um, the grand score. I've not even looked at the Hall of Fame, but I think I know its fate um, of 6.44, which is one of our lower scores. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So here we are in our hallowed Hall of Fame. 141 albums now grace these walls. But how did the three from tonight do? Well, we don't have to look too far up from the bottom to discover the Wild Hearts. Uh, So they're 10 up from the bottom at 131. Uh, they just managed to creep above Hammer Horror by Warfare. Uh, Firehouse, how did they do? <laughs> well, they're not too much better. They're outside the top 100. They've come in at number 115, uh, a place above Contagious by Y&T and a place below Demanufactured by, by Fear Factory. And we have to go a fair bit higher for, for Rainbow. Um, they've come in at number 67, down to earth, number 67. Um, they're uh, a place above Lightning Strikes by Loudness and uh, just below Slave to the Grime by Skid Row. So what do you make of that, guys? Well, I somewhat mischievously thought that all three might be a bit lower than that, but um, there you go. Yeah, I, like you, Steve, I thought all three albums would be slightly lower than they are. I certainly thought Down to Earth would be a little bit lower. didn't expect it to be struggling to stay in the 100. And, yeah, not surprised at all to see the Wild Hearts where they are. If you had asked me six days ago where I thought Firehouse would come, I might have said top 30. But, even you know, for me, it slid down and down and down the more I listened to it. But, you know, it's a Grammy Award-winning album. So what do we know? It's a terrible advert for an album, isn't it? The more you listen to it, the the worse it gets over the course of a few days. Christ. Yeah. Anyone listening to us regularly knows that these episodes really do ebb and flow. Uh, you, We never know just what these albums are going to do and sometimes episodes really, really surprise us uh, and sometimes they really, really challenge us and I think uh, this is one of those. But three that were worthy of consideration, I think. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed uh, this uh, episode 47 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. We will be back again with you very, very soon with three more albums chosen on another theme. Hell knows what we'll choose, but I'm sure it will be as interesting to review as these three albums have been. So I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you for your company, and we'll see you again really, really soon. Bye. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 